Welcome to Long Story Long. I'm your host, Lisa Curry. Today's guest is the incredible Liz Winstead. Uh, I am not exaggerating when I tell you she is a personal hero of mine. Liz is a very funny and very smart stand-up comedian, writer. She's co-creator of The Daily Show. And most importantly, she is a huge pro-choice advocate. And she runs a nonprofit that she started called Abortion Access Front that you should check out and also donate to. Um, She's had such an incredible life so far. And uh, I got a little insight into how she came to where she is now. And I loved it. It was so much fun talking to her. And I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Here you go. Hey, Liz, how's it going? Good. How are you? I'm so good. It's so good to see you and talk to you. I know. I'm excited to be here and be um, talked to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to jump right in. Uh, you're, you're from Minneapolis, right? I am from Minneapolis. I live here half the year and I live in Brooklyn the other half. Oh, you're in Minneapolis right now? Yep. Nice. I love it there. It's, uh, it's really fun. It's good here. Yep. That's awesome. Um, so I knew you, I think I, I learned of you at the same time from uh, your abortion advocacy and from stand-up and everything, just kind of like all at once, uh, because I, it was like around when I got into comedy. Um, when you were growing up, did you know you wanted to be a comic? Um, you know, I was the youngest of five kids in a family trying to get a word in edgewise. <laughs> so... I knew that I wanted to be a something where I could speak uninterrupted. <laughs> so I actually thought I wanted to be a priest. Whoa. Because I thought that like, well, I actually, I wanted to be an altar boy because <laughs> altar boys were making pretty decent bank doing weddings and funerals. I don't know. If Wait, a lot of what? I did that. not know they made money. Oh my God. They made so many tips being altar boys at weddings and funerals. No one knows this. It's a secret. Well, wait, um, I need to be an altar boy now. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were babysitting for like nothing. They mm-hmm. were raking it in, getting tips at weddings and funerals. So I was like, maybe I'll do that. That's the gateway being a priest, isn't it? Uh, turns sure. out it's not. Uh, and so I, I was going to be a teacher. I thought I'd teach history. I love history. And so I was yeah. studying history in college and I was kind of the class cynic rather than the class clown. Uh-huh. And someone dared me to do stand up my junior year of college. And I just did it on a whim. And then I never looked back. Like I then I did every open mic for the rest of my life. My that life. is incredible. I love, I think I've met one other person that they were like, yeah, it was just a dare. And I'm like, that is such a hilarious way to start a lifelong career. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and the thing is so interesting is, Um, when you don't see yourself doing something, Mm -hmm. um, then you can't imagine you doing it. Right. And so I'm 60. And so when I looked at the comics, even comics, I love like George Carlin and Richard Mm -hmm. Pryor and, you know, the women that were doing comedy were like Joan Rivers and, um, you know, comedians who that uh, were women, uh, did not have a life that I was like a punk rock kid Mm -hmm. and kind of political. And, and so I was like, I don't know that someone that has my thoughts or my ideas, I never saw myself. So I didn't think I could do it. And then someone said, you know, try it. And, uh, and I did, but like, I think that's why the value of just representation is so gigantic, you know, so that somebody can aspire 
Absolutely. I think people downplay that a lot and they think, well, you know, you see somebody doing it and it's like, right. But it feels very, so many fields feel just very male where, yeah, you know, your perception as a kid is like, well, obviously I, I can't be that any more than I can be a Ninja Turtle. You know, yeah. it's like, it just doesn't compute. Well, and seeing somebody isn't the same as seeing somebody who is sharing experiences that are like yours. Yeah. Right. So I saw plenty of women, just like I saw plenty of women in a beauty pageant that doesn't, <laughs> I didn't see myself <laughs> in a bikini in high heels walking down a no. ash, you know, and, uh, um, you know, and so it's like, where was that person, you know? And yeah. so, you know, then people like, uh, you know, I start then I started doing it and then other, you know, other people started doing it. And then you had Margaret Smith and Jeanine Garofalo and people yeah. who were like, like-minded people who were sharing points of views that were not of mainstream, you know, thought. Yeah. Which is so great. I, I mean, I grew up watching Janine Garofalo and I was like, oh, this is so great. And, and to your point also, I feel very lucky that there is, by the time I started standup, there was so many women and so many different voices that I'm like, oh, I could do any of these, you know, which felt, yeah. which felt really exciting. Yeah. So when you, you fell in love with standup right away, did you still finish college? No, I dropped out. I, I dropped out of college. Um, like, <laughs> It, like, I don't know, shortly, maybe eight months thereafter, because I was working two waitressing jobs and doing mm -hmm. open mics. And I was in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul. And a lot of people don't realize that it's a big hub of comedy. And back in the 80s, it was a huge hub of comedy. Really? So, I didn't realize. Yeah. You know, Louis Anderson and Joel Hodgson is from here, Mitch mm -hmm. Hedberg. Um, and so there was five full-time rooms Oh, when I started comedy here and there was like nine open mics. And so what was so cool is you could do open mic night all like all the time, sometimes two shows. Mm -hmm. I worked five, seven nights a week doing stand up. And then uh, every single national headliner would come through town and play a club for five nights. Because back then you would do Wednesdays through Sundays if you were oh, on the road. God, that sounds like a dream. <laughs> so you got to meet all of these comics mm -hmm. and open for them. And then you got to work on your act. And so instead of practicing and going up in LA or New York and then having the like bad fortune of having some, you know, somebody who could change your life be in the audience and mm -hmm. then bomb you know, you just kept working at it. And then you just kept creating relationships so that when I went out to the coast, I had a shit ton of friends who helped me get on at the improv and helped That's me get awesome. on at the laugh factory and at um, the ice house. Yeah. So you came and to LA first. I went to San Francisco first. Oh, um, cause I wanted to, I'd never lived anywhere, but Minneapolis. Uh -huh. And so I wanted to have a transitional city and a lot of my friends had moved there. Um, mm -hmm. And so I was roommates with Dana Gould. And I uh, love Dana. Yeah. So Dana Gould, uh, a comedian named Dan Spencer, and another comedian and writer named Alex Reed, who you might not know, but he was like mm -hmm. a showrunner on Malcolm in the Middle forever. Oh, cool. And yeah, he's a great, um, a great, great writer. And so we all lived together in a house in San Francisco. 
Uh, and then I moved down to LA and then I moved to, I lived in LA for three years, moved to New York in 1990 uh, and then moved, was by coastal New uh-huh. York and LA from 2000 to 2003 and then landed square footed back in New York until this year when I bought a house in Minneapolis also during the pandemic, like everybody else. Yeah, that sounds, I'm so jealous of that. That sounds so great. Did you, so when you got to San Francisco, or I guess where along the way did stand up become a full-time thing? I did, I would say I was doing stand up in Minneapolis and then doing like regional shows and stuff Mm -hmm. from 1983 to 1986 and then so three years I was doing day job and Mm -hmm. stand up and then the middle of 1986 I started um getting I went out to Boston um because my college roommate for those of you who are radio nuts uh was a woman by the name of Michelle Norris who is the host of All Things Considered um, for years on NPR? Oh, wow. Now she's a journalist, and she was doing an internship at um, at the Boston Public Television Station. I think it's called WBUR or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I flew out to drive her back home um, to live in our apartment. And when I went out there, I did an open mic, and that's how I met Dana. He was hosting. Oh an wow! Open mic. And I did an open mic and then he helped me get an audition at this place called the comedy connection in Boston. Oh, I know of it. Yeah. 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 And so um, they passed me and they, uh, and they booked a lot of like one nighters around the Mm -hmm. region. So I came back out to Boston like four months later and um, just started doing one nighters and I would fly to Boston every so often and do work. Uh, and it was great because that was my first foray into like paid work and I could make enough money. And then from that, I could get demo tapes and recommendations to get into other clubs. And then the rest was history. That's awesome. I, I love that so much. I I never realized that you came to LA before New York. Did you, how did you like LA? Were you like, I mean, your time here was really short. Oh my God. I was there for three years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I hated it. I'm not, my problem is I've my love and drive and like reason for living, mm-hmm. um, has nothing to do with show business. Right. Yeah. I love cooking. I love Scrabble. I love game night. I'm a giant political junkie mm-hmm. and LA's foundation was, was just simply getting famous for the yeah. sake of being famous. And my, I was driven to do comedy because I wanted to have something to say, um, and was, you know, developing an audience. I never wanted to be like a generalist or like just Mm -hmm. talking about dating or any of that, you know, I was specific. And so a, um, you know, I, I don't think I was marketable in LA and people didn't want to talk about politics or issues or whatever at parties. Everybody was just like desperate. And I, really they still are Liz. <laughs> yeah I know and I just couldn't handle it I mean there it's like I just I just didn't I just didn't like it and um I think that also probably came across I think that I was a either isolated or b just kind of jaded 
Mm-hmm. And, um, and the reason I got to LA even was I was in San Francisco uh, and I had done this shit ass one nighter in Merced, California. And it was Oof. like, you can only imagine a feminist doing <laughs> politics. Of, I've done some of those like yeah. smaller towns in California and it they're rough. It is Trump country. It was <laughs> yeah. like a nightmare. Like whatever tr- the equivalent of Trump country was back then mm-hmm. was just like the worst. So then I came back in town and I did a late set at this really cool club called the Holy City Zoo in San Francisco. And it's where everybody hung out. And it was this very mm-hmm. small, intimate place. And I got on stage and I just started talking about the garbage fire that was this show. And this guy is laughing really hard. And I was like, yeah, shut the fuck up. You sound like this terrible version of Mork. Like, shut up. It turns out it was Robin Williams. No, come on. Who I was shitting on for literally 15 minutes. And he was like, you were so funny. I'm going to introduce you to my manager. And he did. And his manager booked me on an HBO special called Women of the Night. That's incredible. Um, And I did. So I know my first TV spot was an HBO special with Joy Behar, Susie Essman, um, and then a woman named Diane Ford and another comedian named Carla Felicia. Yeah. So, and they dressed us up like prostitutes for the open uh, and called it women of the night because, (laughs) you know, it's always like all female centric stuff in, in comedy for whatever reason is marketed. So corny all the time. Corny. And also just like cheap ass bullshit, Mm -hmm. um, stereotypical, like sex worky for the male gaze kind of like thing. And it was just like, I had a big fur on and we got out of a limo and, and it was just like, there's a show in LA right now that you can't, it's an all women show, but you're, you can't be on it unless you agree to wear a dress and heels on stage. And I'm like, how reductive I hate Does it. a woman book it. Mm-hmm, sure does. <laughs> What's the, what does that have to do with anything? I have no idea. Uh, it's, do, I, I think I she thinks it's clever flock to it. Do people block to do it? People do it. And I know a lot of women who've done it. Cause they're like, well, I don't know. It's a spot. And I'm like, I would never on principle, I'd rather just get an amp and yell in the street. I, I no fucking, I would quit. get an amp and yell in the street at that show. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, do, do whatever you want, have whatever kind of show you want, but like, yeah, it's cringe. I don't even know. I don't even know. It's also very gendered. Yeah. Yeah. It's you not, know? um, I don't I love mean, it. Can men wear, can men wear dresses and heels and do it? Can like, are people you who know, are that's just a great non-binary? Question. Like, can it, is it just like, I don't care what you're, what you're, you know, what yeah. where you are on the binary, just you have to wear a dress and heels. Cause everyone wears dresses and heels just to, <laughs> yeah. you know, cause that could be like a whole other thing. If everyone had to wear heels and a dress, yeah. And it's like um you're degendering it. You're also showing like why are you forcing one gender or why is this some sort of beauty standard? Right, yeah. Um because a beauty mm-hmm. standard is there's no beauty standards because it some people are not beautiful or don't feel beautiful in dresses. So yeah. you're setting up a beauty standard. It's so weird. It's that so causes weird. Discomfort <laughs> for, that would cause discomfort for people and also would yeah. would have people not want to go there because of that. I don't yeah. know. That just seems very, I, I don't, um, uh, I mean, th- that feels like a very LA thing. Like that would never, never fly in New York. I can't imagine that. You have I mean, to have your lips plumped in the show. <laughs> yeah, Everyone absolutely. has to have Botox in their forehead 
and use a lip plumper if you want to perform stand-up comedy that's the show i'm gonna start producing great idea yeah i mean that is just wild yeah i don't even understand i don't even know what you're saying right now Wait, when you, I'm so curious, when you realized that you had been roasting Robin Williams, were you like, what the fuck just happened? Um, I was, he walked up to me and he goes, excuse me. And I was like, I cannot, I go, I'm so sorry. And he goes, no, it's hilarious. You know, and then he, he broke the ice right away. Like, and made me feel okay right away. But there was a moment where I was like, please don't poop in your pants. Like <laughs> this is <clears throat> my career is ending tonight. And um, turns out he thought it was very funny. Um, and then it was just egging me on the more he laughed. And the more I was just like, dude, you are disruptive in a fucking mess. Like stop, <laughs> um, you know, and I don't, and then now I don't know if the audience was laughing because the audience knew it was Robin Williams. Cause it was one of those clubs where, you know, those clubs when you're standing on stage and you cannot see the audience, it's pitch yeah. black. It was, that was how the stage was lit. Mm-hmm. And so um, they could probably all see that it was Robin Williams, but yeah. I could not. Yeah. They were in on the joke. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, and so you, you do the dig, dig, dig. <laughs> you do the <laughs> HBO thing. Does that, did that lead to other stuff right away? No, in fact, I didn't do that well on the special. Oh no. Um, I did okay. Um, but I was just really cynical and I did a whole bunch of jokes about celebrities that were gross. And of course mm-hmm. in Hollywood, when you do uh jokes about celebrities, um, you know, everyone's like shy to stay away from you. Did you offend somebody who's famous and has power? Yeah. And so it didn't really serve me that well. Um, I did other things, uh that I think I did other things that I think were better mm-hmm. um, coming down the pike, but um, I mostly just became like a road warrior for a long time. And yeah. then um, because I couldn't, I would go on auditions and like I was trying to do acting, but then I was trying to pay my bills. So I couldn't get a consistent thing going. Yeah. And so when I went to, so then I was like, I'm going to go to New York. Cause I think I'll like New York more. Mm-hmm. And um it was better for my psyche as far yeah. as having a more well-rounded life for sure. Yeah. New York just feels magical. And I like that. I I feel like people in LA are just like in this loop where they just talk about the industry all the time. And there's, it, because it's the entertainment industry is so prevalent here where, you know, New York, there's like a, a you know, a bustling scene in other artistic disciplines. And so yeah. there's, things just feel more conversations just feel more dynamic and people feel more dynamic and yeah um it's so great for stand-up it's so great for stand-up it's just so great for art and music and culture and everything else too Mm -hmm. food um you know I mean and and to be fair about LA like it's the same reason I wouldn't live in DC either like I love politics more than Mm -hmm. anyone and I don't want to live in a town where people are just living, eating and breathing politics. I yeah. feel like you're detached from the change you want to make, the work you mm-hmm. want to do, if if you're not living a full life with which to draw from. Absolutely. It just becomes too insular. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, when you moved to New York, did you immediately fall in love or did you like- I had been to New York a bunch of times mm-hmm. and- you know, it was back in the day in comedy, 
uh, everyone was saying you got to go to LA Mm -hmm. and the New York holdouts were the New York holdouts. And so, and my friends were doing the San Francisco, Los Angeles route. And so I just went along with the flow, but I Mm -hmm. had gone to work in New York several times um, and done a lot of sets there. And, and so I had friends there and, uh, you know, stand up New York was my home club and the comic strip. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had developed relationships there. So it, I eased right in, you know, and plus even before I started doing comedy, I was going to New York from Minneapolis. Like there was this creepy airlines called people's express that, what? Like, that was like, <laughs> yeah, people's express. It was, it was like, it started in like 1980 or 81, but huh. it was, it was this off-brand airline. It was like one of the first off-brand airlines mm-hmm. and it only flew into weird airports. And so before Newark airport was a legit place to fly into, mm-hmm. it was really sketchy. So <laughs> it was based in Newark and Oakland and huh. any place that it would fly in the country, you would have to go to Newark or Oakland first. What? And so, yeah. So <laughs> if you were going to Boston, you'd have to go to Newark and then you'd get a plane to Boston or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it was like $25 what? to fly. Yes. You couldn't, it, but every, but then you would pay to check a bag, pay of course, to yeah. buy food. I think you had to chip in for gas. Standing like, room only. Yeah. It was a whole situation. <laughs> um, but for the years it was happening, it allowed a lot of us young comics to A, fly to like places like Baltimore and places you couldn't drive to make money. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, I could fly to go to music venues. And so I would fly to New York and go see, like I would check the back of the village voice and see like pick a week where there was like a shit ton of concerts uh-huh. in New York. And then I would just like hit all the concerts and crash on somebody's couch. Oh God, that sounds back. like the most fun time. Yeah. I mean, that must have been the time of your life. It was so fun. I mean, and being from Minneapolis, like my roommate was, you know, I had crazy roommates. And so like my roommate was in this band Soul Asylum. And so when they would play, I would fly out and see them. Um, and wait a minute. And so, I know Soul Asylum. I mean, who doesn't? Yeah. Yeah. So Danny Murphy, the guitar player was my roommate. And so, you know, I would fly to New York and see them and they would be on a bill with like Husker Du and the replacements. And so then wow. you would just be like going from club to club and, um, and then maybe, you know, and that was before stand up. And then mm-hmm. I would do stand up the same way with this people's express. It was so crazy. And then they folded probably because it was a terrible business model. Yeah. Um, it sounds like it was a drug trade or something. If it yeah, just had yeah. the two, <laughs> it was you're like, we have a delivery to make. <laughs> yeah. It was a mess, you know, yeah. but it was like clubs that were inaccessible. And, mm-hmm. and then when people's express folded, then I was driving around the country in my, uh, Ford, what was my car? It was the Ford Escort, a five-speed Ford Escort. And I would drive that I would drive around and go to gigs in. Yeah. And so, and then I started my crazy vintage clothing shopping along the road uh, back in the day when like you would go to the, you know, Toledo, Ohio, and it would be a treasure trove of Ugh, I love vintage shopping on the road. It's my favorite thing. It's my favorite thing still in the world. Like so, yeah. And um, so I would come back with just a car full of shit. <laughs> I love <laughs> I love blowing whatever I earn on the road. Uh it's Oh, yeah. It doesn't feel like real money still. I mean, even though, you know, I make, I'm doing stand up full time. I'm like, 
I mean, this is my career. It is my income, but also it feels like play money because it's so fun to earn. (laughs) I know it feels like you're scamming someone. Yeah, absolutely. Every time I'm like, I don't know, you're writing me this check. It's I would have done this anyway, but okay. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Who's, who's winning here. That's so funny. How did you, um, I mean, I guess this is fast forwarding a little bit, but, um, how long into New York or how did, how did you end up, uh, with the, doing the daily show, making the daily show? Right. Right. So, um, back in the early nineties, um, the first Gulf war happened Mm -hmm. and it was, a smoke and mirrors game and a governmental ploy and the media was in on it. Mm -hmm. And I will never forget. So I was just on the road and I was doing material that was, you know, so, you know, observational with some Mm -hmm. like, you know, social commentary a little bit and a lot of feminism and stuff, not really politics. I had politics. I just didn't talk a lot about it. Mm -hmm. So I got set up on a blind date by a friend of mine and I was like, oh, okay. So the guy calls me and he's like, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, La Dolce Vita is playing at the film forum. And I had never seen La Dolce Vita on a big Mm -hmm. screen. And I really wanted to. And my first clue should have been, don't go. When he said, oh, isn't that in black and white? No. (laughs) Yeah. But I'm like, okay, I'm going to go because whatever. So I meet the guy at the film forum and he's wearing a Yankees hat and a Yankees satin like jacket. That's too much. I have a theory that if a person is wearing more than one piece of sports memorabilia, they won't go down on you. It's my theory. (laughs) You know what? I I, feel like that tracks. I feel like it tracks. (laughs) So he, we get popcorn and we sit down and then he proceeds to fall asleep during this like incredible movie. And his satin jacket starts rubbing down my arm. And I'm like more annoyed than ever. And I kind of elbow him to wake up. And then he wakes up for a second. Then he keeps mm-hmm. falling asleep inside of my So finally I could not control myself. And I took my greasy popcorn hand and I purposely woke him up with my greasy popcorn hand just to ruin his jacket. And then, and then I instantly felt terrible. So then when the movie's over, I'm like, do you want to go have a drink? I'm so sorry. And then he's like, okay, I know a sports bar down the street. I'm like, of course you do. Of course, of course you do. So we go to the sports bar and this is where the story is relevant to your question. Mm -hmm. I love this whole story. Um, It's the first night of the Gulf War and there's bombs and like all of a sudden it seemed like CNN and we have to remember CNN was the only news network at this point. There was no Mm -hmm. anything else. Well, this was prior to them doing 24 hour news, right? I think that came after 9-11. Only one. No, no, not after 9-11. That came in in the late nineties. This was in the early nineties. Got it. So um, then there's all these hot guys and I was like, what's happening? And then, uh, I just thought as I was watching all this coverage, because it felt like a TV show. It didn't feel Mm -hmm. like a real war. And it was the first time America had watched a war start in their living rooms. And I remember just thinking to myself, are they reporting on a war or trying to sell me a war? And like five minutes later, dude goes, this is really awesome. No, I was like, sold. That guy was sold. Like, and then I was like, furious, not at him, but like, just at like that, my thought was kind of real. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, if there was ever such a thing as an epiphany, 
like I had one that night just that I wanted to just talk about how we were being duped and fooled. And then I just started reading all this news and started writing more political material. And I lost half of my audience and then had to rebuild based on, um, based on really what I wanted to talk about passionately. And so I did a one woman show uh, about politics and the war and just everything. Um, oh my God. We, wh- how was that like super timely? Did you have to, did you have to build the show? I built the show and, and I, yeah, I built the show quickly. Um, and I launched it in Boston and I went, um, I went on the radio in Boston on public radio in Boston mm-hmm. to, to plug, to do an interview about the show. And then it was, it was right before we were doing the show. Like it was a lead up to the show. Mm-hmm. And it was the weekend of one of the first marches on Washington um, in the nineties. And so I mm-hmm. went from Boston um, rehearsals to the March the pro-choice March. Um, and then we came back to the theater and the answering machine for tickets ran. It was an answer machine ran mm-hmm. out. Like you could not leave a message anymore. Mm-hmm. People left notes to get tickets for my show and the show was sold out on this one interview. And so I did this big political show in Boston and I, and that was when I just started building up this sort of reputation for doing comedy and politics and Uh all mixed together. So when I was, um, and I was going to bring the show to New York, um, and it got canceled. And so I was broke and I didn't know what to do. And I was moving into a new apartment building Mm -hmm. And I moved above Madeline Smithberg, who was the executive producer of John Stewart's MTV show. Mm-hmm. And John and I knew each other and had done comedy together. And uh, she was like, we need a segment producer. Do you want to work on uh, the show? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't know how to segment produce. I don't even know how to type, but <laughs> not even anything. I went to go buy a computer and I bought a chair instead, like a big cozy chair. <laughs> My boyfriend at the time taught me how to type Relatable. and uh, to, so I could just do the job. So I took the job and we worked on the John Stewart show for about 10 months. And then that show got canceled. Mm-hmm. And uh, our bosses at the John Stewart show were hired to take over Comedy Central, Doug Herzog and Eileen Katz. Oh. And John got sucked up into a development deal with David Letterman's company. Mm-hmm. So when our bosses got over there, they called up Madeline and me. And they were like, we want to do a show that's like a newsy show mm-hmm. response to the world. We want it to be like sports center. And I'm like, Oh God, no. And so um, <laughs> you're like having flashbacks to that date and you're like, so I was like, yeah, no. So then we were like, I said, well, what if the show is like a news parody and like the, the show itself is a character. Mm-hmm. You know, like we do funny headlines, but we also do news pieces and field pieces because mm-hmm. the media is also part of the problem. And they were like, oh, that's funny idea. Okay. And I was like, okay. All right. Um, and then they said, and this is unheard of. Mm-hmm. And Madeline had been a producer. She was the executive producer of John's show. She had worked on David Letterman. She had a lot mm-hmm. of experience. I had barely any. So then they were like, um, well, you should be the head writer. And I was like, oh my God, you're right. I should. No idea how to do that. Uh, but, you know, men are always taking jobs where they're just like co- profoundly unqualified. Always, so like, even yes. president. Oh, yes, even president. So I was like, yes, we should. Then they said, and this is the part that's 
extra uber unheard of. You know, this is a show that really needs to develop on the air. So we're not going to even do a pilot. We're going to just put you on the air and give you a year guarantee so the show can develop. I have never heard of that. That now, is The Simpsons is the only other show in the history of television that made it to air without a pilot. Yeah. What? Even I mean, Jerry like, Seinfeld had to do a pilot. So, also, like, crazy. how nice of them to just believe in you instead yeah. of, like... I don't so even many know if they believed in me, but they yeah. definitely knew that you couldn't really pilot a show that was based on new information every day. Oh yeah. You know? And so, um, and so that's how, um, that's how that started. And that's incredible. To, it, I mean, the, it must the 25th be, year it's been on. It must be deeply flattering also that, or I imagine it is that there's so many copycat shows now there's been what a dozen other shows that are that exact same format that are just kind of different versions of it. Well, I think that there's shows, I would say that there's not a show that's a necessarily a copycat format, but I mm-hmm. would say that there's shows that took the idea of um, information culture, mm-hmm. which is what I like to combine media, the media and the people in the media, you know, as one, how, how media works is mm-hmm. as sad as, satirizable if that's a word or whatever (laughs) um uh as the people in the media right so Mm -hmm. john oliver is very different than the daily show Mm -hmm. you know what colbert's show was a sort of this o'reilly kind of thing Mm -hmm. uh sam b's show is kind of magazine pieces you know so people took what that the essence that people want to hear information in a funny smart way and they will consume it and become loyal fans of it if it's done well. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that feels really good. And to your point, like all you have in this business is instinct. And so if your instincts about a show and about the people you hire on it are right, it makes you really feel like you can do anything, you know, nobody can take away from me. And I fought against a lot of bad ideas from the network. You know, they wanted it to be like when they watched it, like, they weren't in love with the politics. They wanted mm-hmm. it to be more like an entertainment tonight parody. No. And I was like, no, nobody wants that. Nobody wants to. And especially if you want to be in bed with celebrities, why would you shit on them? Like take on the big, powerful people yeah. in the media, you know? And, uh, you know, they, I butted heads a lot with, with the people at the network and they, you know, I was young. I probably wasn't the most, um, tactful person, uh, <laughs> but it, it worked in your favor. It worked in my favor. I also didn't give like impressing the network executives much to my chagrin mm-hmm. and wallet was never the goal Yeah, because the satisfying part of all of it is having a writing team who watched you do two things. One, uh, fight for their jokes. Yeah. You know, in a way that I never I was like, don't go there. You know, I was like, I'll fight for that. Uh And then also if I had to change something or the network was like, we can't absolutely do that. um, I had the skills to change it to something equally as funny or funnier. Mm -hmm. And when they saw that, then they respected um, if I had to change it to what I changed it to, you know, and um, they were liked it that I honored their work and that that's all you can do. It's like, yeah. I'm not going to win every battle y'all, but I'll fight. I'll go there. And I love I'll that. So, it's so important. And I think, I think so many people are, 
afraid to fight for things, fight for not just what other people, but even for themselves. Cause they think like everything feels so high stakes because so many aspects of this business are, I mean, you're, it's, everything's a fucking lottery ticket, you know, but I, like I tell friends all the time, I'm like, you just have to remember, like a lot of these execs are all, just morons that have an office job. That's it. It's not, you're not any, they're not smarter than you. They just decided they wanted to be on that side of things. You know, it's not, um, and I'm not calling them all morons, but we know a handful. Oh <laughs> yeah. Sure. You know, I mean, and that's the whole thing. And it's kind of like, you know, when I look at like this whole Joe Rogan thing that's been mm-hmm. happening lately. Right. You know, and it's like, people dying to go on that show because it was the number one podcast and is the number one podcast. And it's like, what is your point in your comedy? Mm -hmm. Who is your audience? What are you trying to achieve? Absolutely. And, and, and like, just because someone has a shit ton of fans, do you want them to be your fans? Yeah. Do you want to be part of a disinformation machine that's full of like questionable thought? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, it's like no is free and and there's other ways to do it, but like yeah. you know, I don't understand why people look at that basket and they're like I he's successful so I want to make sure I'm sitting putting my butt in there and having my words legitimize him. Cuz yeah. that's all it really does. Oh, absolutely. Because if you're somebody who doesn't enjoy or doesn't know how to feed the Joe Rogan fan beast Mm -hmm. or aren't interested in it because you actually want to do thoughtful material. That's not indulging that shit. Mm -hmm. Um, The second those people ever came to see you, they would hate you. That's that's the thing I can't grasp. I'm like, I don't want those people at my shows. I don't want those people at my shows either. Or (laughs) I don't want them to know me. Yeah. Like, you know, I don't, I have no interest in yeah. in that. And so that's the part that I don't, I've never understood. Like, if you want that to be your fan base, mm-hmm. like go for it. Like, you know, go into that circle of like bro and chomping on cigars and like, I can blow myself, which was the classic <laughs> Joe Rogan episode <laughs> uh, of late. Uh, you know, it's like, like, why don't you, you do that more then? Yeah. If you want to be that and be, you know, get those like guys who are like, whatever, but like scary, aggrieved white men who are trafficking in misogyny Mm -hmm. and scary other shit and COVID denying and, you know, blaming feminists for, you know, why white men aren't getting ahead, which, yeah, because, you know, we're just dominating everywhere. Feminist (laughs) agenda. It's also like, I wish we had that much power. I I wish. I know. (laughs) I know, you know, and it's just like, if we wanted to destroy you, uh, we would be working harder at it. We just mm-hmm. want work. And yeah. we just would like for you to not affect like the path that we're choosing. Yeah, absolutely. Like, so, yeah. What, I mean, I'm sure also kind of going in a little bit of a different direction, but I, to bring it back to you more, I, obviously you've, I'm, or maybe not, obviously I'm assuming you've always been a pro-choice person, um, as have I, what, um, brought you to go into the path of like really getting into abortion advocacy full-time? Um, well, I got pregnant the first time ever at sex in high school. 
Uh, what? And, yeah. <laughs> I just did an actual spit yes, take. actual spit take. <laughs> Got pregnant the first time I ever had sex in high school and Catholic, terrified. Mm-hmm. With the, my boyfriend was creepy and abusive. Oof. And, um, you know, it was a hundred years ago when for pregnancy tests were not like just everywhere. Yeah. Um, and I saw an ad for a place on a bus that said free pregnancy tests options. And it was a fake Christian. They, it looks like a place that way. No, one of those. Mm-hmm. And I went in there and this woman pops out in a lab coat. That you know, I didn't even think that anybody that works at the lawn comb counter could fucking get a wears a lab coat, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, and then she pumps my head full of like, you know, uh, you know, we don't know how far along you are. You should come back again in a month. And then she pulls no. out that book with all those creepy fetuses in it. And then um, she really scared the shit out of me, uh-huh. like just telling me like I was bad and that the abortion was of against course. she actually said abortions against our law, meaning her religious law, but I heard against the law. So then I'm like, oh my God, is this against the law? Like, oh my, what am I doing? Like, it's really scary. And I was terrified. (laughs) So I left. And as I was walking out the door, she said, remember your options are mommy or murder. That's what she said to me. Yeah. So I was just terrified. One of those sounds way scarier than the other. And it's mommy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so I ended up finding a clinic that does abortions mm-hmm. and had an abortion and it like it because the one thing I knew like Catholic guilt was all there there was a lot of shit there oh yeah but you know when you're young and you're with somebody who is awful mm-hmm. uh, I didn't know how to get out of the relationship but I knew that if I had a kid with this person I would never get out of the relationship yeah and so um I was super glad and then I was, you know, and then I'm a white person and I'm lucky. So I just had my abortion, moved out with my life. And then I realized in all this work in daily show. And then I also launched air America radio and did a bunch of other political Mm -hmm. work. And even in those scenarios, people would say, you can talk about anything, but abortion is a bit too far. You know, mm, that really divides people. That's really, and it was like, I realized that The issue I care deeply about, an issue that if we don't have abortion, more than half of the people who in the world, Mm -hmm. if they're forced into a pregnancy, won't be able to execute their hopes and dreams. And it's, and, and, you know, when, and if you want kids is the first step to every other decision and opportunity that you make for yourself. Absolutely. Right. And so realizing that what I'm good at is trafficking in issue, issue in politics through humor, Mm -hmm. that that issue was ignored, forgotten about stigmatized and needed work. So I just decided to combine all my like comedy writing and stand up and sketch work. Um, and, and then focus on working on raising around issues around abortion and reproductive rights. And so, um, back in 2011 or 12, when Wendy Davis was uh, in Texas and everybody mm-hmm. remembers in those sneakers and all those laws. Yeah. Um, that's when I was kind of motivated and I was writing a book and uh, I was in Minnesota and I had to drive mm-hmm. back to Brooklyn. And so I decided I put my two dogs in a rental van and drove around the country doing benefit concerts and visiting clinics I love uh, that. during that time. Mm-hmm. And the clinics all said to me when I would go visit, like, no one's ever come here. Like, 
to visit us. Why are you here? And they were, Oh, interesting. And they were, they were not being rude. They were being just desensitized that they were just alone in this. Mm-hmm. And so I got back to New York and I had a big potluck dinner with a whole bunch of comics and producers and graphic designers and people that I know that worked in the business. And I said, we got to do something because this shit is real. And a lot of us have had abortions or at least use birth control to yeah. get us where we are. So uh, we started abortion access front and we travel around the country doing comedy and music shows. Uh, and then we have the clinics and the local activists come on stage and we have conversations. Mm-hmm. So it's like a variety show. And then the people who live in those towns uh, are immediately hear what's happening locally. They find out where, what, needs to be done. And then they can sign up right in the room to help. Mm -hmm. And the retention rate's been really great. And so we're growing activist bases all around the country. Um, And now we have a talk show that's on YouTube every Thursday at 4 PM on abortion access friends, YouTube called feminist buzzkills live. It's a really funny talk show that has like experts and comedians and musicians on. And we talk about the news of the week. We talk about what you can do to, uh, you know, take on some of these bad laws. And then you can hear from the people doing the work what's actually happening because the media doesn't talk about it at all. It's the number one thing happening in every state legislature around the country. Yeah. And it, and the amount of coverage it gets on cable news is 0.3%. That's, that is so insane to me. It's also like, it's maddening that it's, it's seen as a women's issue. It's like, it's everyone's fucking issue. I mean, it, women aren't getting pregnant by, by a miracle, you know? (laughs) Well, also too, like how many, ask a woman and ask a dude Mm -hmm. who pays for the birth control in your relationship. Always the woman. It's almost always the woman. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and maybe you split the cost of an abortion if an unattended pregnancy happens, Mm -hmm. but who benefits ultimately both people get to then pursue the path that they're on. Mm-hmm. They don't have to be derailed. They don't have to, you know, parent with somebody that they do not intend on spending their life with. And we live in a society where men are given more opportunities. So yeah. men profoundly benefit from birth control. Absolutely. Health. And so step up, do the least, get money, <laughs> do the literal least, do the literal least, donate Throat. to abortion access, aafront.org. That is the very least. Yeah. yeah, it is. We're actually doing a comedy show, um, in, at the bell house on May 22nd called, uh, doing the bare minimum where love it's it. all men comedians who are going to just perform <laughs> as in a fundraiser for our Good. organization. Good. That's such a great idea. I love it. Yeah. Why not? Uh, it is it also maddening and I, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I have not been in a situation where I needed to, I, I've, I haven't even had a pregnancy scare. Um, and I, I'm grateful for that, but it's, it's still really scary to think that that option can be taken off the table should I need it. And it's, yeah. it's it, maddening to see that so many people in Congress are constantly fighting against it. And it's like, this never fucking ends. It never fucking ends. But also I think it's important to realize that um, it's not the, where these things are really happening. If you want to mm-hmm. drill down is in 
state legislatures across mm-hmm. America. Um, abortion laws are coming out of states. And so if we want to put an end to this garbage, we mm-hmm. all have to be a little bit more diligent about who is holding office in our, who's on our city councils, Yeah, who is in the state legislature or the state Senate, mm-hmm. uh, who's your secretary of state, who's your attorney general. Yeah. Cause those are all people who are in cahoots with, and you know, they're crafting crazy anti-abortion, like yeah. think tanks are crafting legislation and handing it to crackpot politicians in these mm-hmm. states. There's been cases where sometimes these dumb shit politicians, they hand the legislation to mm-hmm. don't even change the name of the state that they received that. Come on, come on. Swear to God. It's like, you know what? You maybe should change that from Indiana to Ohio. That is, they're not even looking at it. They're They're like, whatever. Yeah. It's called model legislation and it drops everywhere. You know, this Texas style bounty hunting abortion ban that's being dropped, replicated almost to the letter um, by these organizations in Florida, Mm -hmm. Ohio, um, Arkansas, you know, it's wild. So, you know, learning about what's happening. I mean, this is how bad it is. They just proposed a law in, in Idaho, I think it is, where if you are pregnant and want an abortion, mm-hmm. you have to call a state run hotline, excuse me, and a state run hotline <laughs> that's run by one of those fake clinics that I was just talking about that yeah. I went to. And they give you an identification number to track, to see whether or not you've had an abortion. What? What does that sound? When is giving someone an identification number ever turned out well? Yeah. I bet I can't think of a time. No, it's not a time. No. <laughs> so, and they can do geo tracking and geo fencing so that like, if you were somebody who decided to get an abortion, um, they can geo map your phone. So if you're sitting in the, uh, in the clinic waiting room, Liz. you can get a text saying what? Don't have your abortion. Don't have the abortion. Yeah. You know, I, this is like what's happening right now that that's just been proposed, but in five States now it's the fifth state that's proposing it. And so this is the kind of real world shit that I think if people knew, they just wouldn't believe it, which is why we're doing the show. You know, you can hear these stories of like, just, just how obsessed. So if your roads are fucked up or you're like, just trying to get, you know, a living wage on your Mm -hmm. ballot or your environment's a mess. Just know how much time they're spending on abortion and nothing else. It's so gross. It's crazy. It's also crazy to me. I mean, you know, there's been a million points made by people far smarter than me about, you know, well, if this is, if this is murder, then what's going on at the border, what's going on overseas, you know, and I've, I've found it, um, I guess, ironic and frustrating and maddening and gross that conservatives, you know, for continue to push for things like they want uh, before a woman gets an abortion, they want her to look at an ultrasound. And it's like, hmm, you don't require people to look at pictures of uh, dead kids overseas before they vote for war. So why? And those are kids that are fully alive and have a have a full life already. And it's it's it just makes me want to put my head through a fucking wall. Yeah. And, and I think the thing is, um, you know, even just the framing pregnancies, aren't children or babies, mm-hmm. they're pregnancies. Exactly. 
And so when we talk about pregnancies, let's talk about pregnancies and let's not say baby or mother, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think that we need to think about um, the vet, like, how somebody wants to treat a pregnancy is up to that person. Yeah. So if you're pregnant and you want to say my baby, you go ahead and say that no doctor's going to say that to you. If, but because if you're pregnant and you don't want to be pregnant, mm-hmm. then you would like to terminate your pregnancy. So the value yeah. of the pregnancy is solely up to the person who is pregnant, which is a hard thing to hear and a hard thing to say, but that's just true. Mm-hmm. And, um, in like you, the only person that gets to decide is that person. Like, sorry, if you didn't want, and when dudes are like, I regret lost fatherhood or how come I don't have a say, you don't get to have a say because it's, you dumped your seed in somebody. It's also, you can go achieve fatherhood somewhere else. Also wear a condom. Yeah. (laughs) Also the risk you take, Yeah. you know, unloading into Mm -hmm. someone. That's the risk you take. Possession is nine tenths of the law, my friend. You know, if you were to go dump your fucking apartment full of shit on my front lawn, you don't get to then, if I throw it out, be like, I want my stuff. No, you put your shit in my lawn and Mm -hmm. walked away. Yeah. Sorry. Absolutely. And also to your point just a minute ago about the language, I'm noted at like, I immediately noticed, I was like, oh yeah, I did. I said that weirdly, but I'm like, as much as I am an advocate and, you know, I'm, I try to involve myself. I'm like, I still have my whole Catholic family, you know, over my shoulder saying all these things. And so it's like, you uh, like, I kind of get lost in that sometimes. And I'm like, I don't agree with them. Yeah. So much of the language that we ever learned on how to talk about this issue, Mm -hmm. we just were absorbed from the anti-abortion movement. Absolutely. You know, we didn't even have our own language. We called Mm -hmm. them pro-life when they don't care about a pregnant, anyone pregnant, when they blow up a clinics, when they stand outside and harass patients, when they don't advocate for people at the border, when they don't advocate for a living wage, when they don't advocate to make Mm -hmm. sure that like there's environmental uh, safety in place, when they don't advocate to make sure that if you're black, you're not gunned down. If you're a young boy or man in the streets, like all of those things are pro-life. Where are they? They are nowhere. They yeah. are pro-forced birth. They are fetus fetishists, but they certainly are not people who defend life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I uh, thank you so much for being on. I have one last question for you because I don't want to keep you too long. Uh, sure. What if your childhood self, like 10 year old Liz could see you now and could meet you? What do you think she would think? Um, I think she would. I think that she would like me only because like, I really, uh, I really love, you know, I love big fun things. Like my go-to shows when I am not working are Riverdale and like, (laughs) like shows that are like tween shows. Mm -hmm. So like, I love, I love, I I think that we would connect on a lot of levels. Um, I love that. So I think that she would be happy because I think that she would see somebody who, um, who would embrace her curiosity instead of telling her that having curiosity made her trouble. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you finally get to speak up too. <laughs> yes. That's so great. Do you want to, um, or can you please plug your, uh, your stuff one more time? Sure. Uh, if you want to find out where I will be out on the road, you can just go to bands in town and that's, I always fill Mm -hmm. up my dates when that's there. I'll be in Duluth, Minnesota in June. 
Um, but uh, if you want to watch Feminist Buzzkills Live, that is on the Abortion Access Front YouTube channel, 4 p.m. on Thursdays. Please watch. It's really fun. If you want to know about our organization, our social feed is really dope. It really is funny and great. And that's at Abortion Front. I'm at Liz Winstead uh, with two Z's on all the socials. And you can follow us everywhere. TikTok, Insta, Twitter, all of it. I love so it so I'm much. All over the places. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. All right. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Thanks so much for listening. Once again, that was Liz Winstead. You can find her personal page on Instagram and Twitter at Liz Winstead. That's Liz with two Z's. And you can find her organization, Abortion Access Front, on Instagram and Twitter at Abortion Front. And on YouTube at Abortion Access Front, where you can watch her weekly show, Feminist Buzzkills. Please do that and please donate to her organization. It all goes to a very, very good cause. And you know what? Get out there and vote. Um, Educate yourself and know what the hell's going on and, uh, you know, do the right thing, people. Um, And again, I am Lisa Curry. You can find me on Twitter at Lisa underscore Curry and literally everywhere else at Olympian Lisa Curry. As usual, if you are enjoying the show, please like, subscribe, tell a friend, write your congressperson. You know what? vote about it. Okay. Um, we will see you next week. Thanks so much. Bye.